The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's so good to be together on this Sunday morning, and it's so good to see your smiling faces, or at least most of them. And then for those watching online, we're so glad you're joining us this morning, and we do encourage you, as you're able, to rejoin us in worship in person. I do want to say a special word. Uh, Thank you to our other elders who have preached so wonderfully and faithfully these last couple of weeks. Would you join me? Yes. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we're asking now that your spirit would blow on your people so that we would see you your work in your church with fresh eyes, to see your splendor, to see your majesty, to marvel at who you are and what you're doing. So cause the Spirit to blow this morning so that we would behold you in all of your glory. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Who spoke those words? William Carey. That's right. William Carey was a missionary to India, and his list of accomplishments is quite long. He founded a college and a university, campaigned in India to end widow burning. So after the husband died, the widow would often be floated off and burned alive translated the Bible into Bengali, Hindi, Sanskrit, and three other languages that I can't pronounce. He he founded the Baptist Missionary Society, founded the Agra Horticultural Society of India, and spent 41 years in India without a furlough and had about 700 converts. Do we expect great things from God this morning? If I'm being honest, I watch the news, and I just get discouraged. Things just seem to be getting worse and worse. We have pervasive polarization, the continued genocide of Uyghur peoples in China, Boko Haram killing and kidnapping in Nigeria and Chad and Cameroon, the infringement of religious liberty even to our northern neighbor in Canada, Violence in the Middle East, the heinous abuses of power and the oppression of the vulnerable. And here in our own culture, widespread confusion over something as simple and God-ordained as gender. So let me ask the question again. Do we expect great things from God? Do we believe that God is currently, right now, in our world, at work, for his glory and for his purposes? Do we believe that the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ looks down on all that takes place and claims it as mine? My guess is, most of us would say, yes, we believe that God can do great things. And yet this morning, from this passage, what I want to do is to help us feel that deep in our bones into the very depths of our soul. 
that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and well and working in and through his church for the advance of his glory. And this section of Acts 9 is so stunning. I hope we see it all together. Let me just help situate us within the book of Acts. So Acts 8, chapter 8 through chapter 12 sort of unfolds the ministry that is going out to Judea and Samaria. And the gospel advances in the most unexpected of ways, right? We see the martyrdom of Stephen and then the massive persecution from Saul, the murderous threats and the martyrdom of Stephen. So how do you think the church was feeling? They were pretty discouraged. Fear and dread permeated the atmosphere of the early church. What are we going to do? We're all scattering. Is this the end of the church? Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples. There was persecution, chapter 8, verse 1. There was Stephen's death. Chapter 8, verse 2, and Saul was ravaging the church. Chapter 8, verse 3. If you took the pulse of the early church at that moment, you would have sensed that they were having an anxiety attack. And yet our passage reveals the purposeful sovereignty of God. It's what theologians call the providence of God. That God is working things out according to his wisdom for the good of his people unfolding everything according to his design. No one wants persecution or murder or imprisonment, but God is using it for good. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers after his dad died? You meant it for evil, but what? God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. You wanted to kill me. And yet God redeemed it so that I would be able to save all of you. God meant it for good. And we see that in a stunning way in our passage this morning. What Saul means for horrific evil in the murder of Stephen. And what Satan means for evil in the imprisonments and the persecution. God means it for the good and for the advance of his church. So the main point of our passage is this. Marvel at how Christ builds his church this morning. Marvel at how Christ builds his church in saving sinners. And he's doing that even today, despite all of the hostility or opposition that we might see. Do not for a moment believe that Satan can snuff out Christ's church. Do not for a moment believe that the cultural climate is beyond the power of God. Do not for a moment believe that this technological age will undo belief in Jesus. Do not for a moment believe that any totalitarian regime can snuff out the gospel. Do not for a moment believe that our God is not the one who can do far more than we can ask or even imagine for the glory of Christ and for the church. We just have to get used to internalizing Psalm 2. The nations will rage and the peoples will plot in vain. But what does Jesus do? He sits in the heavens 
and laughs. He's unconcerned. So my aim is to help us feel these realities deep down in our soul this morning. So the plan is this. This passage breaks down into two sections. We see Saul in 19 to 31. So Jesus transforming an enemy to become an evangelist. And then we get Jesus sending Peter to manifest signs and miracles from 32 to 43. And then I want to end with a few applications. So first, Jesus transforms an enemy into an evangelist. So we saw Saul's conversion in chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, and the passage picks up, and we see Saul's ministry in Damascus and Arabia, and then later his ministry in Jerusalem. So Luke gives us all sorts of details related to the geography so that we would understand how the gospel is continuing to go forth. Damascus would have been about 150 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It would have taken about six days on foot. It's like walking from Minneapolis to Duluth. And why was Saul going to Damascus? With the very purpose of bringing people back to Jerusalem to put them on trial. This was a very motivated persecutor of the church. In verse 19, the second half of that picks up, and it says, For some days Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. This is stunning. The very person that was going there to throw them in jail, to bring them back, to put them on trial so that they could be executed, has been transformed, and now he's fellowshipping with the very people he sought to kill. Verse 20 says, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. This is a 180 degree transformation. The enemy has become an evangelist. The most notorious and infamous of the persecutors of Christ's church is now testifying to the divine authority and identity of Jesus. So the question that comes up is, how would Saul know what to preach? It says, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. How would Saul know what to preach? He just got converted. Well, I think we're supposed to think back. Well, Saul led the persecution of the followers of Jesus. So he was well acquainted with what they were saying and what they were teaching because he concluded that this was blasphemy, enough to be put on trial and to be killed. Saul was a Jew a Pharisee, well-trained in the scriptures. In Acts 22, verse 3, it says that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And do you remember Gamaliel? He shows up in Acts 5. He's the one that says, leave these people alone. So Saul very well could have been sitting in the trial of the apostles, seeing this unfold, and saying, no, we have to kill these people. Breathing threats. Saul likely heard Stephen's entire speech as he oversaw the clothing of those who stoned him to death. Saul might have been listening in when the apostles were teaching in Solomon's portico. And yet, this Saul now has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ to be an instrument and vessel for the gospel. So we see Jesus marvelously advancing his church, even in the conversion of one of the chief persecutors of the church. This is how great God's power is. And I think it's a little bit like this for Saul. He's putting the puzzle pieces together. 
and, and, and based on his training and based on what he's hearing from these apostles, he's saying, oh, here's a revolution that's going to undermine the Jewish faith. And he keeps persecuting and persecuting and persecuting. And then finally, the encounter with Jesus is the one missing puzzle piece. And now he turns it all around and he realizes, I've been wrong. This man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. Makes Judaism finally make sense. And now he begins to proclaim Jesus. He was once creating havoc in the church. And now he creates havoc in the synagogues for the Jews. In verse 22, it says, He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, there's a passage of time that transpires between verse 22 and verse 23. Verse 23 says, When many days had passed. And so how many days, Luke? Well, it was three years. And how do we know this? Well, Galatians speaks about this. Paul wrote Galatians, and in Galatians 1, verses 17 to 18, it says this, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So Saul says, I never went down to Jerusalem until later, until after about three years of ministry where he was preaching in Arabia. And then later in chapter 9, verse 26 of Acts, he goes down to Jerusalem, and that's what he's referencing. So Saul's stay in Damascus included his missionary work in Arabia, which would have been the Nabataean kingdom on the eastern frontier of Syria. So what we're continuing to see is that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only saves Saul to stop him from persecuting Christ's church, But he saves him so that he would be a missionary and begin to spread the gospel even further north into Arabia. Now, in verse 23, it says the Jews plotted to kill him. And Saul talks about this further, actually, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from verses 32 to 33. And he basically says that the governor under King Aretas in Damascus gave an order to seize me. And so what Paul is saying there is that because of his ministry in Arabia and Damascus, the Jews were getting so worked up that they even got the permission of the local leaders, the local governor in that region to go after me and kill me. Why do these details matter? Because these details show and prove and fulfill what Jesus said to Ananias back in verse 16 of chapter 9. He says, for I will show him, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the chief persecutor of the church is so transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ that he willingly suffers for the name of Jesus. The name he once wanted to wipe off the face of the earth is the one name that he's willing to stand up for now and even be persecuted for. This is the stunning, transformative work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is advancing his church by taking the greatest threat, a well-trained, zealous, intense, and focused persecutor in Saul, and converts him to be a great evangelist. Because now this evangelist sees Jesus as the great, pearl of greatest price. 
that he is the treasure. Saul didn't do any of this begrudgingly. He said, I now have life and truth and finally see clearly and I'm willing to even die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25 says, his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Note that Saul has ministered that he now even has disciples, others who are learning Jesus from him and God ultimately delivers him. Now, I want to transition to Saul's ministry in Jerusalem in verses 26 to 31. So he goes to Jerusalem. The disciples are afraid of him. And it says in verse 26, they did not believe that he was a disciple. So they're thinking, maybe Saul is that clever. This elaborate three-year period of time, he's gone undercover so that he can ferret out all of what's going on. He's really a mole. And yet Barnabas brings him. And then it says in verse 27 that he preached boldly in the name of Jesus, even risking his life to stand up for Christ. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, verse 29 says he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. It's so striking. These Hellenists in Jerusalem are very likely the same ones that stoned Stephen, that were disputing with Stephen and they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit of Stephen. Chapter 6, verse 10. These are the people who partnered with Saul in stoning Stephen to death. And now they find themselves on opposite sides. And now they want to kill Saul as well. And we see in the midst of this, the providence of God at work to advance his church. Now, Saul escapes. And if I think about Saul, I don't know if you, you, you do this. He doesn't sound like a person who wants to escape. I imagine he wants to be the type of person who says, I'm going to stay, and if they're going to kill me, bring it on. And yet, Saul talks about this in Acts 22, verses 17 to 21. And, and turn there with me, because I think it's so striking. Acts 22, verses 17 to 21. Luke doesn't include this detail earlier, but he includes it here. So Acts 22, verse 17. And this is when he returned to Jerusalem. So he says, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, This is Jesus. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. What's taking place there? Saul is having this conversation, and he says, they're going to listen to me. I should stay here in Jerusalem, because these people know what I was like before I encountered Christ. They'll believe my testimony, because I was a really good Jew. I was even persecuting all of the disciples. And, and what does Jesus say to him? He says, they're not going to listen to you. You need to go away, and then I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And so, Saul ultimately escapes. He gets sent to Caesarea and then later to Tarshish. And I think there's a word here for us. That God uses the rejection of Saul's testimony by these Jewish and Hellenist leaders so that he would be sent to the Gentiles. That it would launch him out. Saul's testimony 
you would think of anyone's testimony would be the one that would be accepted. Here's a Jew, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. They should have listened to him if they would have listened to anyone, but they don't listen to him. That's under God's sovereign hand, providentially, so that Saul would be the greatest missionary to the Gentiles. And I just have a word for us this morning. If you're feeling rejection in some places, it's perhaps God is closing that door and opening another so that you would be able to minister. I think of our global partners. Many of them are not getting visas to go back to their countries. Many of them are getting kicked out. Many of them are finding struggles in learning the language or the people want to kill you. And perhaps God is closing a door so that he would open another one to send you out for the sake of his name in a greater way. Don't always see the rejection of those around you as outside of God's sovereign and providential hand of design. Now, verse 31 ties it all together and summarizes it for us. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is stunning. The church was scattered. Fear and dread are in the air. And what does verse 31 say? They experience peace. Peace and multiplication. God transforms a chief persecutor to be the chief defender. And the church goes from persecution to peace. And I think it's a reminder for us. Jesus guarantees persecution for his church. And yet all those whose mind is stayed on Jesus can find perfect peace. It doesn't matter of our circumstances. Luke goes on to say that the church is being built up by God, growing in maturity, steadfastness, and even growing numerically. The fear of God was greater than the fear of those around them, and they experienced the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Let me see if I can just illustrate what's taking place in these three years with, with this illustration. I was once on a camping trip with my family and our small group, and uh, one night we were told that there's going to be 50 to 60 mile per hour winds and a massive lightning storm. That's not good when you're sleeping in these flimsy little, you know, tents that are made of paper. Um, and, and so the sirens go off in the middle of the night, and our, our phones start buzzing with uh, alerts, and so we all run to our cars. And so in that moment, we go from panic and fear because of our windblown tents and maybe a tree falls, which a few did, to now we're sitting in our cars and we're beholding the most beautiful of lightning storms that I've ever seen in my life, better than any fireworks show that you could pay for. And so we go from fear and panic to marveling at the power of God. And so it is with the church. They go from fear and dread and panic, and now they know that the Lord Jesus Christ is working. And so they can just marvel at how he's choosing to unfold his perfect plan for the church, even if they wouldn't have designed it that way. And that's what I want for us this morning. Marvel at how Christ builds his church. The kingdom of Christ marches onward. And it doesn't matter what the world looks like. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. Amen?
Amen. Peter sends, or Jesus sends Peter to manifest signs and wonders. So verses 32 to 43, we get two accounts of Peter ministering outside of Jerusalem. And let me just comment on what I think the two purposes of these two miracles are for. Why do we, why do we see them? I think the first is that these miracles reestablish Peter and reestablish Peter's ministry in anticipation of him bringing the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11, which we'll see next week. And secondly, they illustrate Jesus' mission of continuing to advance his church throughout Judea and Samaria through signs and wonders through his people. So we get Peter in Lydda, and then we get Peter in Joppa. So first, Peter's ministry in Lydda and Sharon, verses 32 to 35. Verse 32 says, Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So this suggests that Peter would normally just travel around and to all the scattered kind of groupings of Christians throughout Judea and Samaria and encourage them and preach and teach. And at Lydda, he heals a man named Aeneas. Now, he announces the healing before he does it. He says in verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And then he says, rise and make your bed. And then he was healed of his paralysis. This is such a brief miracle with hardly any details that you might wonder, why does he even include it? Why is it there? I think the reason is this. What Luke wants us to see is that this is so similar to Jesus' healing of the paralytic in Luke 5. You can find that in Luke 5, 17 to 26. We're not going to read it, but if you remember, the paralytic is brought to Jesus. They can't get in. His friends go up to the roof. They tear off the tiles. They let him down, and then Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and Pharisees are grumbling and saying, how dare he say that he, his sins are forgiven? And Jesus, knowing exactly what they're thinking, he says, I know what you're thinking. And then he says, in order to prove that what I said happened, he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And Luke tells us immediately that the man was healed. So what are we to make of this eerily similar miracle? I think what we're supposed to see in this miracle by Peter is that Peter is the right representative of Jesus. What this does, this account, shows that Jesus is powerfully at work in and through his apostles, who are his authentic representatives, testified to by signs and wonders. And the reason this is so important is that when Peter, in the next chapter, in 10 and 11, Peter doesn't go rogue, but he's doing exactly what Jesus wants him to do. But he goes, and he's associating with Gentiles. He's going to become unclean. He's preaching the gospel to them. He's likely staying in Cornelius' home. He's eating with them. He's even baptizing them. And what Luke wants his readers to see is that Jesus is the one who is directing his disciples in order to advance his church. And there's more territory that has yet to be taken I'm going to send Peter, reestablish him, and then send him out to the Gentiles. Because a persecutor is not going to stop the advance of the church, nor is the divide between Jew and Gentile. I'm going to tear down that wall for the glory 
of Christ and for the good of the church. And verse 35 says, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The point of the miracle is to authenticate the messenger and the message, and many come to saving faith. Jesus is advancing his church by saving sinners. Now, let's move to his ministry in Joppa, verses 36 to 43. And I think the same thing is happening here. This miracle is reminiscent of Jesus' miracle of healing Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. Jairus was was the ruler of the synagogue. He had a 12-year-old daughter. He sent men to bring Jesus as she was dying. And by the time Jesus gets there, she's dead. And Jesus goes in, and he sent everyone else out. But who else went in with him? Peter. Peter, James, and John, and then the mother and father, and he said to her, child, arise, and she got up at once. And we see this very same thing with Dorcas. Luke tells us that they had washed her in verse 37, which means they're preparing her for burial. People have already come in order to grieve, because when Peter gets there, all the widows, verse 39, stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and the other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. There is great grief and lamentation. But just like the last account, we see the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ at work through his apostle, Peter, to show that he is the true and authentic representative of Jesus as he advances the gospel into new region. And the key difference between Jesus' miracle and Peter's miracle is what? Peter prays. Jesus just goes in. He has all the power of heaven and earth at his disposal. Peter does not. And so what does Peter do? Peter knelt down and prayed. And then afterward, he turns to the body and says, Tabitha, arise. And then he presents her alive. And in verse 32, it says, it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. So here in these two accounts, we see the reaffirmation of Peter as a representative of Jesus. But I think there's also another subtle message being conveyed. And I think it's this. For Jews, what was the center of their spiritual life? Jerusalem and the temple. Everyone goes to the temple multiple times a year because that's the center of your spiritual life. You go and you worship and you make sacrifices But Peter's going further out. Saul's going further out. The disciples are scattered. What's happening? Jerusalem and the temple are no longer the center of their faith. Where's the center of their faith? Jesus. Jesus is establishing himself. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. That's why none of us will ever say, you need to go to Jerusalem so that you can really understand your Bible. No. It's a fun vacation, but you don't need it fundamentally to understand the scriptures. It's helpful, but the center of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for all of these other individuals that are beginning to hear the gospel and see the power of Jesus at work through Peter, they're coming to saving faith. And it's not just happening at the temple. It's not just happening at Jerusalem. It's not just happening in the upper room. It's happening as far and wide as the gospel will be preached. Jesus is the center 
of our faith. So how should we apply this passage? How should we apply a passage such as this in light of all the challenges and difficulties and hostilities and discouraging things that we see in our world today? We should see through the hard things to see the onward march of Christ's kingdom according to his providential hand. Jesus is building his church. Despite what you see in the news, despite the state of our world, if it gets 10 times worse, Christ is still on his throne. He still looks down at the nations and laughs. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he alone is in control. And he's unfolding all of human history according to his infinite wisdom. None of us would have picked Saul to ravage the church, and yet God used Saul. So I have three specific applications I want to draw out. The first is this. Be encouraged by Christ's work of saving sinners. Be encouraged at Christ's work of saving sinners. Imagine that you're one of the disciples. During this time, you've just scattered, you run away, fear of your life, packed up all of your belongings. Maybe you left them behind and you just heard about the killing of Stephen, this godly spirit-filled man. Why didn't God protect him? And you hear this Saul fella breathing threats, dragging people off, interrogating them. And you are discouraged. And then you hear rumors. Saul's been saved. Saul's been converted. Saul is now testifying to the name of Jesus. Jesus has confronted Saul. He was blinded for three days. Now he's preaching the name of Christ. Could it be true? And then you're growing more and more encouraged. Saul killed Christians, and now he labors to save others by preaching Christ. And so be encouraged by Christ's work in saving sinners. Persecution will not undermine the providence of God and the unfolding of human history according to the infinite wisdom of God. Opposition cannot snuff out the early church. It's a little bit like when we blow on a birthday candle. If you're all alone, and perhaps the blowing of a birthday candle is like persecution that comes, and you can blow out that candle easily. But try that at the next bonfire that you have, or a campfire that you have, with all those burning embers at the bottom. Blow on it. As much as you blow, you can't blow it out. All you do is fan the flame more and more so it burns brighter and hotter and burns more deeply. And that's what the church is. That's why we gather week after week after week. We gather together because we can't be blown out. When we're just one by ourselves, we might be able to. But when we're gathered together, when persecution comes and blows on the church, oh, may that be the blowing of the Holy Spirit so that we would burn hotter and brighter for the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care where their world goes in the next 10, 20, or 30 years. The Lord Jesus Christ is building his church and he's saving sinners for his namesake. Application two. 
be empowered by the Spirit. Be empowered by the Spirit. Jesus works signs and wonders through Peter to establish his apostolic authority. These miracles authenticate both the message and the messenger. And, you know, this isn't prescriptive or normative for us. We, we don't normally see this sort of thing uh, of raising people from the dead and healing of paralytic, though I have heard it happen often on kind of frontier missions and in the mission field, but we don't often see it. So while our ministry may not look quite like Saul's or quite like Peter's, remember, that this morning, every believer here in this room has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to participate in advancing Christ's kingdom, to participate in the onward march of the church. We have the same power through the same Spirit in service to the same Lord with the same exact purpose to see people come to saving faith. So go. Go and make disciples. Speak with the boldness and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to our neighborhoods and to the nations. Third application. Be emboldened to pray for unlikely conversion. So be encouraged, be empowered, and now be emboldened to pray for unlikely conversions. Despite a seemingly dire situation, Saul, A zealous Pharisee ravaging the church, dragging people off, overseeing their interrogation, their imprisonment, and their beatings. Jesus doesn't just stop him. He saves him and redeems him so that he would be a minister of the gospel. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. No one can decisively resist the irresistible grace of God. No one is too far gone to be saved. And so what I want to call us to this morning is be emboldened to pray for the most unlikely of individuals in your lives. Because we all have those people. In the back of our mind, we think, oh, that person definitely will never come to saving faith. They're so far gone. Their, their, their belief system is so beyond. They're, they're so intertwined in this weird cult, or they're so into themselves, or, or prosperity, or whatever it is. And we have those people in our mind. They're never going to get saved. And that's what they said about Saul. And so, be emboldened to pray this week And in the coming days and weeks and months and years for the most unlikely of conversions. Who is the most unlikely person in your world to come to saving faith? Commit right now to pray for them. Because God can do it. He can. And he wants to show his power, his grace, his majesty. So that we would say, there was no way except for the grace of God. And in that, Jesus would get more glory. Pray that God would mightily save to multiply his church and build up and strengthen his people. And I think it would have this effect as well. It would all make us marvel afresh. Nothing I could have said could have convinced them, but the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit saved them so that all of our faiths would be encouraged and strengthened and renewed. So let's marvel 
at the onward march of Christ's kingdom. Despite opposition, persecutors, Jesus sits on his throne, the risen and exalted Lord, ruling and reigning over all things. And he's at work, providentially, sovereignly. And what does he do? He invites us in and says, join the mission. Let's pray. Father, oh, you are so good. Your word is so good. And I pray that we would see your glory in your word for the good of your church, for the building up of your people, for the growth of your kingdom, and so that many others might be welcomed in, ushered in to marvel at the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. Do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.